Welcome to the Does It Work podcast by Biomarker Labs, where you can find wellness without the woo. There's an alligator coming down. Today, I am joined by Dr. Andrew Puglisi. He is a three times board certified um, infectious disease, sleep, and internal medicine physician um, in uh, the greater metro Atlanta area. And today we are going to talk about uh, sleep and specifically how allergies can impact uh, people's sleep. So thank you so much for being on today. Um, yeah, just wanted to get started. Um, how did you start getting interested in uh, sleep and allergies are, are things that aren't super well studied together, I feel like. So how did you start looking at both of those things together? Well, um, with the allergy component, uh, several different things. One is uh, I, I'm an allergy sufferer myself and was diagnosed with uh, environmental allergies back when I was a teenager, about the age of 14. Uh, prior to the diagnosis, I had uh, quite a few bacterial sinus infections and was suffering chronically with uh, uh, sinusitis. Uh, and it wasn't until I got, I was treated for the allergies with allergy immunotherapy that uh, it resolved my sinus issues. Uh, so um, when I started initially doing work with uh, chronic sinusitis, one of the things that I realized off the bat was that uh, environmental aller allergens could affect chronic sinusitis. So as one of the mainstay treatments for chronic sinusitis is that we want patients to be evaluated for environmental allergens. The way that allergies, uh, so that is how I got involved with the allergy component. As far as sleep, um, early on in my career as an infectious disease specialist, I realized that many of my patients were having sleep disturbances and that uh, their disturbed sleep was having a negative impact on their ability to get better. So, um, and also at the time that I started my training in infectious disease, uh, one of the disease entities that was coming into play at that time was chronic fatigue syndrome. So we were seeing quite a few patients who uh, were being diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And again, early on in my career, I was recognizing the myths, many of the patients that were coming in with uh, complaints of chronic fatigue had um, some sort of um, sleep disorder that may have been the real culprit behind their chronic fatigue and not uh, it as a disease in itself. Uh, so we made a lot of uh, diagnoses of patients with uh, obstructive sleep apnea, uh, narcolepsy, hypersomnia, and uh, when we were able to treat them, they got better. So because of that, um, and again, also that from an infectious disease point of view, depending on the infectious disease that you're dealing with, uh, in itself could create insomnia. So as you're beginning to see, these things can all intermingle. And if you're not teasing them apart and addressing them separately and together, you're not going to get the patient better. Absolutely. So, so yes, what, is, 
what is allergy immunotherapy? Allergy immunotherapy is once they identify what you're allergic to, they start to introduce at very low levels the allergen so that you build up a tolerance to it. And then they get you to what would they would consider a maintenance dose uh, and a concentration that you would experience out in the environment. And theoretically, and it does work from a practical point of view, not 100% of the time, but enough that if you introduce the increase in concentrations of the allergen, you'll become tolerant to it and you won't react to it uh, later on uh, whenever you're exposed to the, to the allergen. Okay, great. Yeah. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you find to be some of the most common um, sleep disrupting allergies. So when you're looking at someone um, and they're having trouble sleeping and allergies might be the case, obviously dust mites um, comes to mind, pets mm -hmm. come to mind. Yes. Um, what else? Pollens, uh, most of the, some of the more common pollens, tree pollen, grass pollens, uh, those are going to be up in the forefront. One of the ones that is very hard to work with other than grass and tree pollens is mold spores. Mold spores are very um, difficult because in many instances you may not skin react with the mold spores showing a true allergen there. However, um, if you are one of the those that patients that have, can create an inflammatory process when you come into contact with uh, mold spores, um, especially in the nasal cavity, and they create a cascade of inflammation. All of those inflammatory byproducts that can come from the reaction can create uh, insomnia. Uh, things like interleukin-2, if that becomes increased in your system, that can create insomnia. Other ones, some of the cytokines are now being uh, shown to uh, play a role in uh, creating, causing insomnia. That's just the byproducts. Always remember with all allergens, no matter what, once you start getting the congestion up in the nasal cavities, it's going to disrupt your sleep because you just can't breathe, <laughs> right? So if you have all that congestion, it really can disturb your sleep. And I can honestly tell you as a teenager suffering with allergies, many nights I couldn't sleep just because of the congestion. Um, another way that allergies may not that people don't realize can affect your sleep is the histamine release that's associated with sleep uh, with allergies. Uh, if you have increasing levels of histamine circulating in your system, uh, it may stimulate you to develop what's known as gastroesophageal reflux because of the increased acid production caused by allergies. Uh, it's a very intricate mechanism. In your stomach, you have uh, histamine receptors. They're known as H2 receptors. When they are stimulated, you produce more acid in your stomach. So at night when you're trying to sleep, 
if you have a histamine release and you're producing more stomach acid, it's going to be coming up and it can actually disrupt your sleep. We call this nocturnal reflux and patients may not be aware of it, but they may be waking up multiple times during the night because of, uh, of nocturnal reflux associated with allergies. That is so crazy. It is, but um, I cannot tell you the number of patients that do suffer like this, and we put them on something like Zantac or Renantadine at night, and lo and behold, they get a better night's sleep. Huh, how interesting. So yeah. that re reminds me, all of the over-the-counter sleep aids um, that are not herbal um, mm. pretty much are um, antihistamines. Right, they're antihistamines, but those are ones that are gonna be working on the H1, uh, H1 receptors, not the H2. The H2 is a very specific uh, receptor that it's, they're beginning to do some research, but mostly it's found in the stomach. And uh, Zantac and those agents will not, don't have a stating effect on you. Okay. All right. So if you take um, over-the-counter sleep meds, they don't necessarily stop this histamine response that causes the excess acid in your stomach. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm also curious from a, a selfish perspective, I often have, um, well, I guess this is a multi-part question. First, I was listening to a podcast recently and um, they said that most people who think they have sinus headaches actually have facial migraines. Um, do you, is that true? Um, it, yes, uh, but I have certain criteria that have to be met before I would say they are facial migraines. <clears throat> and um, because I've been faced with that on numerous occasions where patients have had uh, thought they had sinus headaches and it turned out not to be sinus related. The first thing that before I would make that diagnosis is we have to see what's going on in the cervical spine, the neck, um, because a lot of the innervation that occurs in the face and the head area comes from your neck. So if you have some sort of cervical spine disease bulging discs, arthritis, or something like that, it can cause referred pain to the face and the sinus areas and make you think you have a sinus infection. So um, that's number one. Number two, uh, um, be, again, before I would make the diagnosis of a facial migraine, I would like to have an ENT, uh, one, let's make sure we have a negative CAT scan of the sinuses, and two, a negative endoscopy. In other words, having a trained physician go up there with an endoscope, look at the sinuses, and make sure that we're not seeing inflammation of the maxillary and the front, all of the sinuses, which again can occur without visual signs on a CAT scan. If all of those are negative, Cervical spine, it looks good. There's not a whole lot of disease there. Uh, CAT scan of the sinuses is negative and endoscopy is negative. Then I would say yes. So anyhow, I, as I was saying, if you have 
uh, a negative cervical spine, in other words, there's no disease of the cervical spine, CAT scan of your sinuses does not show any mucoperiosteal thickening or inflammation, and an endoscopy does not show any inflamed tissue in the sinuses, then I would say the diagnosis, instead of being sinus-related, is probably related to a um, facial migraine. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times there's a quantum leap jump right to the facial migraines, and uh, a lot of patients have other underlying problems that are not being addressed. Okay, that makes sense. So if um, the kind of throbbing in the bridge of your nose um, mm -hmm. is related to sinus problems, yeah. um, I also read recently that you want to avoid decongestants like Allegra or Zyrtec because they actually thicken your mucus and make it harder to drain. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, there, there is some truth to that in that it can dry out the mucus and just turn it into concrete, and that doesn't help. Uh, one of the functions with sinuses is you got to make sure you have adequate drainage. It all depends on what is going on, what is the underlying cause. If you do, if it's allergy related, probably Allegra or Zyrtec will help. Um, but if it's a true bacterial infection or if this is something more related to mold, uh, it may not help um, at all and cause more problems. Uh, again, it all depends on who's managing the case. In most of these instances, if it's somebody in primary care and they just want, okay, it looks like allergies here, take that. Uh, take some antihistamines, you may cause more problems than, har uh, than you do good. Um, for most patients, yes, uh, do we recommend antihistamines? In some instances, yes. The mainstay that I have found that works better is to use a saline sinus rinse. doesn't matter what kind of product you want to use, but it does help as far as moving all of this stuff in and out. Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, getting back to the sleep aspect, um, yeah. what are some things that you would recommend that people do to reduce the impact of, uh, I guess like two things. Um, actually, let me back up just a little bit more because yeah. I really like your, your thoughts on, okay, you know, look at the neck, um, get a CAT scan, get an endoscope. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like in my experience, when I go to a doctor and I say I have facial pain, um, they're going to say, take some Zyrtec. How do you get a doctor to actually like do, do these tests? Well, um, again, if you're starting with a primary care physician, uh, unless they are really well-versed in allergies uh, and have had a lot of experience with chronic sinusitis, you're probably not gonna have, you know, they're, they're not gonna be somebody who will be willing to listen to you to get you on the right path. Um, in, in most of these cases, you do need to be seen by an allergist or an ENT that does have a lot of experience with this type of stuff. Uh, it's, this is not to take away from the primary care physicians. They're, you know, a lot of them are very good 
and can deal with a lot of different problems. Uh, it comes down to just how busy they are and how much time they're going to have to listen to you to really tease apart the, the, the history that you're giving them and also what they are finding on physical exam. So if they're looking up, you know, if they even look up there, up your nose with a autoscope or something like that, and if they do see inflamed, swollen turbinates, uh, if there's biofilm, if there's actually evidence of bacterial infection, i.e. pus, that's going to have to be treated differently than if it was just an allergy. Certainly. Certainly. Okay. Um, and then going back to sleep. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so what do you recommend for people to do um, to get their rooms and, and lifestyles as, you know, un well, undisturbed as possible? Okay. Uh, a couple of things that I'd like to talk about with patients in general, as far as related to allergies and sleep. Um, one is uh, to make sure if there are some environmental allergens and you are concerned, um, there's different things that you can do that can really help where you sleep at night. One of the first things is if there is carpeting, how old is that carpeting? Um, because if the carpet, carpet is several years old and if, you know, depending on how much travel there is on that carpet, if there are pets involved and all this stuff, that carpet could be the major source of sleep disturbances in association with allergies. Um, so if you're going to, you know, and people will tell me, patients will tell me, but I just had the carpet steam cleaned or whatever. Great. The problem may not be the carpet itself, but the padding underneath. So because everything drips through to the padding, yes, I know it gets gross. If you've ever seen carpet, uh, the padding of car carpet padding that's several years old, <laughs> people, it really grosses out people. So again, if you can switch over to get all carpeting out, switch over to hardwoods or some sort of a hard surface that can be cleaned uh, really well on a regular basis, that's great. Not everybody can do that. Uh, one of the things that I do suggest to patients, especially here in the Southeast where we're very concerned with mold, is to put a dehumidifier in the bedroom. If you can eliminate any source of moisture you really will uh, have a negative impact on the mold burden and help with um, other, you know, allergens. Uh, pets, if you're allergic to pets, and I know you love your dog, cat, whatever, they can't be in bed with you. <laughs> um, you know, uh, people are willing to sacrifice all sorts of stuff because of loyalty to their pets and how they feel about their pets, but it does have a negative impact. Smoke inhalation is another one, um, you know, uh, burning candles at night is not the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I had one young lady who um, would go and visit her grandmother who lived up in a cabin in the mountains and she would love to spend the weekends there. Well, whenever she spent the weekends there, she'd come back with a sinus infection and come to find out that she would sleep in a sleeping bag in the living room with the fireplace on. And it was an old wood burning fireplace. <laughs> that smoke damage alone 
um, was causing the problem. <coughs> uh, you have to be careful with plant life. If you have m multiple allergens, uh, it may not be the plants themselves that you're allergic to, but the soil may have some uh, mold growth in it, and that could be enough to cause exacerbation of your problem, of your sinus problem. So that's what I would kind of steer away from. Uh, I would also suggest if you do have problems with um, allergens prior to going to sleep uh, to irrigate with a saline solution to see if you can evacuate a lot of the uh, bio burden out of your sinus cavities before you go to bed. That also being said, uh, and everybody's different, uh, some patients I do recommend that they use um, something like um, a topical nasal steroid. You don't have to do it every night, but sometimes if you do it on a regular basis, several nights a week, even maybe two or three nights a week, it may help reduce the inflammation in your sinuses so you get a better night's sleep. Uh, I like using the topical versus taking steroids systemically because you don't get all the side effects. There are some combination uh, topical sprays like uh, Dimista, which is a combination of a, a topical steroid and a topical antihistamine. And it actually has been shown to help uh, patients, especially at night, breathe better if they have a lot of allergies. So those are some of the things that I would suggest doing prior to go to sleep. Uh, if you don't mind, I would like to add some of the lifestyle changes that I like to associate with reflux, which also helps get a better night's sleep. Um, at least three to four hours uh, between dinner and the time you go to bed. It really does help having an empty stomach. Caffeine products at night uh, can uh, cause relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter and worsen reflux. Uh, chocolate. <laughs> chocolate also has been known to uh, cause relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter uh, because it does contain some in other ingredients outside of caffeine that can cause this problem and that can aggravate it. Alcohol at night, again, if you want to have some wine or spirits with dinner, that's great. It's the after dinner alcohol that I get concerned with as far as causing uh, worsening of your reflux. For sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, are there any more, are there any air purifiers that you would particularly recommend? Um, I've been plus minus with the air purifiers, but uh, I have had a couple of patients that have used deionizers. They felt that it does help. Uh, my belief is that if you're going to use an air purifier, make sure that you have, if there, if you are concerned about humidity in your room, make sure you have that dehumidifier in there. Perfect. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, we're about at the end of our 30 minutes. I really appreciate your, uh, your time. There's just one more question I wanted to ask yeah. that I've been asking everybody. Are there any sleep myths that you like to bust? sleep myths that I like to bust. Yes, um, there is one where um, people will tell me, going to bed earlier, okay? It's not so much going to bed earlier, 
than it is to make sure you're getting seven hours of sleep. Well, for the adult, seven hours, seven to eight hours. So what is more important than trying to go to bed early is to have a consistent time of waking up. Awesome. And then setting yourself to have lights out and everything off seven hours prior. So if you need to get up at six o'clock in the morning, it should be lights out 11 o'clock at night. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to just, uh, and, and of, bed. yeah. And the other problem is with that lights out at seven, uh, at 11 o'clock is what you're doing up until that, <laughs> that 11 o'clock hour. Uh, if you're, and trust me on this, I have patients to do this. They have, they have, they're in bed watching TV. They got their laptop open, iPad out, cell phone. And then it's like, oh, it's 11 o'clock. Shut everything down. And they lay there and say, well, I can't go to sleep. <laughs> so you do need that time to decompress and that blue light. There is a lot to this. You need to, you need to get that light sensitivity out of your system at least an hour before you do the lights out. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, I just wanted to say, I really enjoy your blog posts. Your writing mm -hmm. is very clear and actionable. Um, where can people read those? Uh, it's on my uh, blog. It's called idblog.com um, or sinusblog.com. And um, um, I do periodic articles on there at times. As a matter of fact, this weekend, I'm going to be writing a couple more. Uh, in relationship to narcolepsy awesome, and improvement of the immune system. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you. Uh, this was a very good uh, time and I really appreciate everything. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Does It Work podcast by Biomarker Labs. For links, show notes, and more, check out biomarker.io slash podcast. There's